to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. And, and welcome to the 1967 Oscars. You know, we've done a lot of ambitious series. We did the whole Rocky series one Thanksgiving. We're working our way through the rest of Bond. But this might be the biggest series we've ever tackled. This is the most interconnected one. So the last two years that we've done this, we've done we did Best Picture winners for mm-hmm. the first year, ones we hadn't seen. Last year we did Oscar winning performances. And this year we decided when when we've kind of gone through the movies, we realized that there were just some years where we just had real big gaps. So we looked through the Oscar years to try and find one where, okay, where was there a category of Best Picture nominees where we just have not seen most of them? And we settled on 1967 as a whole. Well, we settled on it too when we saw Guess Who's Coming to Dinner last year. Mm-hmm. And the fun part was both of us had seen like one or two movies on the list, including uh-huh. that. I had seen a ton of the dramatic films. And you'd seen a lot of the more big production musical type films. Uh, Yeah. So it kind of split down the middle. Mm -hmm. And when we talked about the Oscars that year, it bangers. Like big movies that we knew we should have already, like the exact premise of this podcast. Movies on my list that I'm like, oh my God, you need to see this. Oh, and I I completely agree. So that's what we're doing. We're watching all of the Best Picture nominees for 1967 and then a bunch of other films that really grabbed a ton of nominations that year. We are seeing the majority of the big nominees for 1967. Yeah. And we will be able to give an informed idea of how we think the awards went. Yeah. So we usually talk about awards at the end of our Oscar episodes. But what's going to happen this year is instead of going into that in-depth conversation of, oh, they should have won or no, that makes sense. We're going to save that and do once we've gone through all the films, we're going to do a 1967 Oscars episode like we do for the current Oscars. Now, a little extra little bit about that scheduling wise. The Oscars this year are very, very early. Yikes. There is no way for us to finish this many films before that broadcast. So we're just going to pause that week. We're going to do our Oscar episode for the 2020 Oscars, and then we will continue and finish on our 1967. And let me tell you, it's going to be a blowout. It, it's nuts. We have clips from the 1968 Oscars mm-hmm. to watch. So I mean... We're probably going to do a full, like, it's going to be like, just like our current Oscars. We're going to go through it. We're going to watch the Oscars as much as we can. It's going to be great. It's going to be really fun. I have I have been so excited about this series since we started talking about it. Yeah, which we we landed, like, we've been planning on doing this for a year. So we're, we're crazy excited. All right. Well, let's start off with our first movie. All right, this week we watched Bonnie and Clyde. Bored waitress Bonnie Parker falls in love with an ex-con named Clyde Barrow, and together they start a violent crime spree through the country, stealing cars and robbing banks. I don't... This, uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> really? You don't know how to feel about this film. I really don't. There are things about it that I really do like, but I don't like the movie. Watching this again... I actually saw this movie around the time I was doing my big, I'm going to watch important movies. Oh, like David Peake snobbery. And the reason this came up was because I had watched some French New Wave films. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about the influence of that and nearly direct influence of that on this film. Mm -hmm. But this movie came up as a part of that. And watching it now, it reminds me of those movies a lot. If you've ever watched a Jean-Luc Godard film, it breaks all these rules. It does all these things that you shouldn't do in a movie. And it's really fascinating and fun and cool to watch. Mm -hmm. But at the end, you're going, do I actually care about this? And the answer is usually no. It's not necessarily a good movie, except that you kind of had fun while you were watching it. There are things that are fun about the movie. I think this movie is iconic. And important. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly influential, but I don't know that it's that 
great. It's not. No. <laughs> it's really not. And so <laughs> that's what I think is so confusing about it because when you're watching it, you're like, I get where they're going. I think it's interesting, but I don't care. <laughs> Should I care? No. <laughs> that's why we're here. So you don't have to care. It's true. The budget. Mm-hmm. Now, before we dive in too deep, one of the things I'm doing, because we're doing everything from the same year, is I've gone to the inflation calculator. Okay. And I've looked up the relative value now, just so we can get an idea of what these movies cost and what they got in return. Okay. No, I like it. This movie was made at the time for $2.5 million. Okay. That would be just under a $20 million budget in 2019. Okay. Not a big budget. No, no, no. Not at all. Especially for a film that is essentially an action film. And you kind of feel that. You're like, this is an action movie. There's a lot going on, but it feels like a low budget flick. Oh, yeah. You can tell it's low budget. Not like in a bad way. Well, not really, but. (laughs) This movie made by the time its run was done. Anywhere from $50 million to $70 million. Okay, well, so it was like jackpot. It was the second highest grossing film for Warner Brothers at the time, mm-hmm. just under My Fair Lady. Oh, fuck. So in today's dollars, mm-hmm. that's $385 million or $540 million. This is a gigantic success. Oh, sure. I mean, it's like 25 times their budget they made back. And I think the reason for that Mm -hmm. is that no audience was prepared for what they were about to watch. Um, I don't don't think that's remotely true. I think like, oh, Bonnie and Clyde. People knew something about Bonnie and Clyde. Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway. Let's go. So you say that this was Faye Dunaway's first movie. I believe that. But people knew what she looked like. I don't think anybody knew who she was. Warren Beatty was a legitimate movie star, but not Warren Beatty. I think it really comes down to that this movie became a phenomenon because it was so transgressive against what was being made by a major studio. Fair. As it gained popularity and people were talking about, holy shit, have you seen what they do in this movie? Mm -hmm. I mean, the violence in this movie is visceral. It's pretty out there. When watching a movie from this time period, and Mm -hmm. especially when I watched it the first time, It really grabbed me because I went, I expect this from like an 80s action movie Mm -hmm. and I expect it to be over the top. But this movie isn't only disturbingly violent. It's also spare in when it decides to use that violence, Mm -hmm. which makes it even more real. Yeah, they get really violent when things are very chaotic. Yeah. Which is a good choice because I feel like they wanted to make it clear that They never really intended to be murderers. No. That's just kind of like when things got hairy, they just stopped giving a shit. You're you're meant to get caught up in the whirlwind of it all. Mm -hmm. One of the things that this movie does really well, maybe to its detriment at some points, it evokes a feeling more than it ever really grabs your attention as a story. Yeah. Which means all those action sequences are really... Wow, eye-opening and shocking. The last scene was a huge deal for young directors because it was the first time in American films Mm -hmm. that violence had been portrayed in slow motion, kind of epically and operatically in that way. So, like, it feels like a joke almost because of how riddled they are with bullets. But I know that is one of the few things about this film that's pretty accurate. We'll get into it with the writing. One of the things that this movie does is that In terms of major plot points Mm -hmm. along the way, the action sequences are kind of true to life. The characters have nothing to do with the actual figures. Yeah. So we'll get into our writing. Our first credited writer is David Newman. This is his first movie. After this, he did What's Up, Doc, the Woody Allen film, and Superman 1, 2, and 3, and wrote the smooth criminal segment from Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. Oh, okay. We also have Robert Benton. This is also his first credit. He would also do What's Up, Doc? Superman, a little movie we talked about called Kramer vs. Kramer, which he also directed. Oh, wow. Places in the Heart, Nobody's Fool, and The Ice Harvest. Hmm, okay. 
and then credited in this movie as a special consultant, but basically doing a ton of work on set on the script is Robert Town. Robert Town has a legendary writing career on movies like The Last Detail, The Parallax View, Chinatown, The Yakuza, Shampoo, Heaven Can Wait, Frantic, Days of Thunder, The Two Jakes, The Firm, Mission Impossible, and Mission Impossible 2. So he works for Tom Cruise. Uh, He's just done a ton of stuff. He was accompanying the crew for last-minute rewrites that they were doing on the set. But at the same time, he was co-writing the script for Shampoo with Beatty, (laughs) which they didn't make until 1975. Okay. And the writing sucks. (laughs) Like, this movie drags on way too long. It, like... This movie doesn't have a script. Basically. Like, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know... Like, there were times when, like, okay, we're gonna... We're gonna really, like, dive into, like, their actual psyche and and try to, like, really elaborate on their relationship. And then we have to have this whole thing where, like, Clyde's impotent. And it's just all stupid. Yeah, I... And, and... It doesn't tell me anything I need to or care about Bonnie and Clyde. The actual writing, I think, is death by a million rewrites. Like, I think it's just everybody everybody on set kept pitching ideas. Warren Beatty's got a huge ego and keeps fighting over how to make this movie. And we'll get into all of that drama. But the script basically is non-existent by the time this movie is done. There's just no story. No. And it's almost like you can't call this a Bonnie and Clyde film because it doesn't, it's not true to their life pretty much at all. No. And so then it's like, well, this isn't a biopic. This is just stupid. So writing blows. What you writing? Um, writing a poem about us. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Let me hear it. Come on. Um, it's called The Story of Bonnie and Clyde. You've heard the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. You think if I sent that into newspapers, it'd print it? Yep, the film in many ways oversimplifies the story of Bonnie and Clyde. One of the reasons they were shot 187 times was Clyde was such a deadly marksman. Mm -hmm. He could like knock off people from distance with a Tommy gun and a Browning automatic rifle. So like he could have automatic machine weapons and still marksmen hit people. Okay. Well, and in the film, they make it like he's horrible with a gun Uh and he doesn't know what he's doing. And it's just like, well, that would have been a much cooler like plot point. And I think things like that were in the original script. This makes me want to go watch Natural Born Killers, which I've never seen. That's a good movie. Bonnie and Clyde discuss marriage in this film, but in real life, Bonnie was already married to her high school sweetheart. Mm -hmm. He was a petty criminal sentenced to life for murder, but she never divorced him. When she died in real life, she actually still had his wedding ring on. Oh, interesting. They never made it out of the car when they got ambushed. They were still there, and it was not nearly as glamorous as somewhat depicted. Um, yeah. Clyde was driving in his socks, and Bonnie had a sandwich in her mouth when they got gunned down. Nice. So one of the things this movie does make me want to do is go dig through the whole rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, that does fascinate and capture the imagination for me. And to me, like I say, it was like, the thing about this movie that is interesting and unique has nothing to do with its story it's how the movie was made and the choices that were made to film and edit Mm -hmm. also that point that you make about the impotence yep originally the script had him as bisexual this was a long-going rumor that clyde was gay back in the 30s that's been disproven by several individual sources close to clyde barrow Mm -hmm. but the script had him written that way And the choice was made by Arthur Penn, the director, who said, okay, look, this movie's already ridiculously violent and filled with sex as it is. Can't make him gay, too. In 1967, and and this is a weird thing where I kind of agree with his choice in terms of a movie-going audience. Mm -hmm. He's like, if we add this in, nobody's going to buy it. No, like this, we've already (laughs) got a really hard movie to sell. Exactly. Like, like it sucks. It really sucks. But I also am like, okay, I kind of get it. This, this movie's so stupid. 
This movie's so stupid. But I kind of still like it. I don't know. I would have kind of liked some like dude on dude kissing. <laughs> Beatty had no problem with it, by the way. I know, because there's a lot of rumors that Beatty himself is not completely heteronormative. Beatty had sex with literally everyone in Hollywood. That's cool. And I mean everybody. <laughs> I know. I've heard all the rumors. And you know what? That's cool. So long as it was all consensual, I'm cool with all of it. But I just, I did find it interesting. They were like, he didn't do it because he was like, we can't have a bisexual on screen. It was like, we're already breaking so many taboos. I don't know if we're going to be able to pull that one off, guys. Let's make a really hot dude impotent. I'm on it. I love it. I mean, that that's the other shot. It happens. Our director is Arthur Penn. Before this, he did a lot of serial theatrical TV. So he did those playhouse shows okay. a lot. And then he did the 1962 Miracle Worker Ooh. and The Chase. After this, he did Alice's Restaurant, Little Big Man, Night Moves, The Missouri Breaks, and one of his last credits was Penn and Teller Get Killed. <laughs> okay. That's a little uh, unusual. What's funny is Arthur Penn now is regarded as like this sort of elder statesman of 60s movie making, mm -hmm. even though he didn't make a whole lot of movies. Okay. But I think this movie... This movie was so influential on directors like Scorsese and Spielberg and Coppola because it was finally bringing to America what the French and the Japanese had been doing all through the 50s and 60s. And at that point, they said, oh, well, we can make movies like that, too. Now, hmm. people will pay money to go see a movie like this in America. <laughs> and up until then, you could only see this in an art house cinema. So I think that's why it's so highly regarded by a lot of film buffs. Oh, yeah, this is this movie is basically like, oh, this is how Tarantino was made. It's very true. <laughs> Penn originally turned the film down, but he was reapproached after multiple directors decided they didn't want to do the movie. Because yeah, the script blows. But his whole style is heavily inspired by rapid tonal shifts and choppy editing of the French New Wave films. It's just bad. Okay, it's just, I don't care what you're influenced by. <laughs> the movie you made is not good. Well, the reason why is because you're working with an American crew and American actors. I, I feel like if Francois Truffaut makes this movie in France, it probably feels better because he has a style and actors he works with who understand that style. You don't have a script. That too. That's the problem. They made a Bonnie and Clyde movie that has very little to do with Bonnie and Clyde. Fair. And you had no script. Yeah, I know. The more we talk about this movie, the more I don't like it. Uh-oh. <laughs> also, a lot of the slow motion was inspired by Akira Kurosawa and Seven Samurai, things like that. Barf. So that's where all that stuff comes from. Barfity barf barf. But they did shoot this movie on location in a ton of the places where Bonnie and Clyde were, which is funny because a lot of those... Are right. towns that we know very well. Yep. If we say early on in the movie, Bonnie's from West Dallas. Yep. And they filmed in Dallas, in Garland, in Rowlett, in Red Oak, in Denton. Like, we're looking at points of this movie like, I'm pretty sure I've driven on that highway before. Like, yeah, this looks like blank and blank. And we're like, yeah, that's like where we went to college. Oh, I think, I think I've seen that field at some point in my life. Like, <laughs> yeah, that... Yeah, oh, that's three. Yeah, like this was filmed in our backyard, which I never knew. And then I had to go look it up because I needed to know where they were buried. And they're both buried here in Dallas. So I think at some point we're going to have to go see their graves. Oh, we're going to have to. We have to. We'll right? get the pictures. The reason they shot on location, besides authenticity, and cheapest book, they didn't want Warner Brothers breathing down their necks. That makes total sense because they were making a violent, sexy movie. They didn't want people coming and being like, nope, you can't show them that much boob. I mean, the scandal around that opening scene mm -hmm. where it is all but revealed that Faye Dunaway is completely naked. Yeah. And like how much of a scandal that was at that time. Yeah. like It's so hard to understand now, but just like, damn. <laughs> No, it's just one of those, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Especially when you want to make a movie like this. No, totally. Like, oh yeah, we took your money. We're going to we're gonna do everything right. Oh, this is the movie we made. Oh, well, it's done. All right, whatever. Now, in a segment for this episode that is going to be epic and wonderful in almost every category, who could have been better? Ooh. The original director who was brought on for this film and did early work in the script development was Francois Truffaut interesting we would have had his american debut with this movie 
he was early on in development, but his dream project was Fahrenheit 451, mm. and that became available, so he left to go work on that, All right. which was made in 1966. It's not a very good version, but I do like Francois Truffaut. Of all the French New Wave directors, he was the one who had the most actual story vision. Mm-hmm. Like He broke all the rules, but he also told a good story while he did it. Yeah. And that's what made him one of the better ones. Hmm. Then Jean-Luc Godard, the bad boy of the French New Wave, is approached. Hmm. Godard was not kept on for one of two different reasons. Either he had such disdain for Hollywood that the investors were spooked by him, or he wanted to change the setting to Japan and have the two be teenagers. Why? Because he's Jean-Luc fucking Godard. And he just wants to break rules. He made some fascinating movies, but that's all he ever did. He just broke movie rules. First of all, if I have to pick from one, it's going to be Truffaut. Truffaut would have been the one who actually like forced a story down on paper Mm -hmm. and then said, okay, we're going to break these rules to tell a better story. That's the point of breaking the rules of cinema. All of the things that, you know, we decided we had to do in the 30s and 40s. We're not doing that because we want to do something different to tell a different story. Mm-hmm. And that would have worked really well, in my opinion. Since the script sucks, I don't think there's any director that could save it. So I I don't care who could have been better. It's a fair point. On to acting. Okay. Warren Beatty as Clyde Barrow. Before this, he was in Splendor in the Grass, All Fall Down, Lilith and Kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. After this, because he's a legit movie star now, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The Parallax View, Shampoo, Heaven Can Wait, the 1978 version, Reds, Ishtar, Dick Tracy, Bugsy, Bullworth, and Town and Country. Yep. How do you feel about his performance? (sighs) He's okay. He's good with the charm. Like, he's a charming dude. So you get why someone would instantly be like, I'm into this dude. Like, you, you have to buy that from him. Oh, yeah. And... I also feel like he's just dirty enough for you to be like, yeah, he's a killer. They just didn't, it's not in the script for him to have been better. Part of the reason that he might have just been passable and not fully invested was he was also the producer of this film. Oh, yeah. So he was splitting his focus on his time. Oh, let me tell you this story. Oh, there's a story. So he goes to Jack Warner to make this movie. Okay. Who is still the head of Warner Brothers. Sure. Warner said he was only going to finance it if they made it like 30s and 40s gangster films. Okay. Beatty fought him like crazy. Beatty's like, nobody wants to see a 30s and 40s gangster movie. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares. And there's this entire new vision of cinema, man. Like, let's make something fresh and new and inventive. Gotta admire the courage and the balls to go in there and do that. Yeah, that's Beatty. As they got into an argument, Warner at one point pointed to the water tower and said, that's my name on the water tower. And Beatty said, yeah, but it's my initials. (laughs) That's pretty good. When the film was screened for Jack Warner, the final edit, he got up three different times to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. He said it was the longest two hours and 10 minutes I ever spent. Weeks later, he actually sold his interest in Seven Arts Entertainment which they had merged with Warner Brothers and were taking over uh-huh. for $200 million. He was done with making movies. Oh, this movie killed him. <laughs> he was like, I don't believe in cinema anymore. Goodbye. <laughs> I can respect that. And new management wasn't interested in taking it on. In fact, Warner's plan for this movie was they dumped the premiere at a Texas drive-in instead of a full-on premiere in L.A., Okay. And then only sent it to second-run movie theaters. Mm. They intentionally tried to bomb this movie into oblivion. That's awesome. And they couldn't do it. It's amazing. Because it was so fascinating to people and got such word of mouth that it took off. He refused to change any of the release plans to show it for the Directors Guild to try to get it Directors Guild Awards. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Beatty had to like fight them tooth and nail to get them to show it at the Montreal Film Festival, where the stars got a standing ovation and 14 curtain calls. That's just stupid. It's stupid, but I I think for me, again, it just goes back to nobody'd seen anything like this. No, I I get that, but I was just like, 
14 is just excessive. You get three. And then you just say goodbye. I'm done. <laughs> it's, like, it's fair. That's just stupid. The movie actually got turned around by a then pretty unknown Pauline Kale, mm-hmm. the now massive movie critic voice. Okay. Every critic in America had turned against this movie. They didn't get it. They didn't like it. They thought it was bad. And she wrote a 9,000 word rave review that was eventually published in The New Yorker that explained exactly. She tried to lay out this like full case of why this movie was so important and what it was trying to do. And she convinced a Newsweek reporter who had panned it to retract his review and say, I get it now. Kubrick rule. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. You're 100% right. Yay, I want that on a shirt. Now, <laughs> let me throw this out there. Oh, no. Beatty made out like a bandit because of, course, of this Of because he was a producer. And if it made that much money, like this set him up for life. Warner Brothers had so little faith in the final product. They gave him 40% of the profits. Holy shit. That's right. That's like unheard of. He got 20 million or like 25 million dollars off the back of this movie. On, this movie set him up for life. I know. But now he's got like, okay, Warren Beatty's already somebody who was like the biggest dick energy ever. ever. <laughs> then you hand that man 20 million dollars. No wonder he became who he became. As the film got more attention, he demanded that they re-release it. And rightfully so. Oh, I would too. If it's got that much buzz and it's such a huge deal, you'd be like, we made a fucking hit movie. Put it out. Go put it back. And the then CEO, Elliot Hyman, said he'd only agree to it if Beatty would take a profit cut. And Beatty threatened to sue. Well, that is his right. He threatened to sue, and not only that, he hinted that he had enough dirt on Hyman to ruin him. Yeah, this is the biggest dick energy dude ever. The bluff worked. He kept all of his fucking profits from the movie. Of course he fucking did. He did have to fight off the censorship. The production code administration were not sent the script until just before shooting because they knew they were going to have to deal with the code. Yeah, that, yeah. And this is right around the time that the Hayes Code is finally ending. Like, this is right before we end the actual rigid code system Mm -hmm. and the MPAA instead puts out a suggested rating. Yes. So we're in that weird in-between stage, and this movie really, like, puts the nail in the coffin. Yeah. Will you explain the Hayes Code real quick? So the Hayes Code was, back in, like, the 1920s and 1930s, we had this era of filmmaking where you could make movies about pretty much anything you wanted to. Mm-hmm. There are lots of movies from that era that aren't, you know, like pornographic films that got into issues of sex and homosexuality and like really progressive topics for the time. Mm-hmm. And enough people complained at the top echelons of power. And I think the Catholic League also had a role in this, but mm-hmm. they got Congress to pass what was the Hayes Code, which put this entire rigid standards of censorship for filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So you had to pass the Hayes Code. And all through the 30s and 40s and 50s, people would fight with the, the censors the censors to see if they could get stuff through and what would or would not constitute the Hayes Code. And eventually it got pulled back. And now we have the MPAA, which is a private organization that gives what we would call suggested ratings. But mm-hmm. it's got enough power that it's able to tank a movie if if you don't play by their rules enough. And that's actually, well, that's become increasingly like challenged over the last couple, because as, you know, our society changes and progresses, like the things that would have been an R in 1967 are not going to be an R today. You know, you used to not be able to fight it. And it used to be very rare that a director would fight an MPAA without willingly make cuts. And then came along Kevin Smith. Yep. And he really said, fuck you people. <laughs> Which is all you ever really had to do with them. He He's fought them three times successfully. <laughs> At last count. It might be four now. Not only was that nude scene that we talked about one of the biggest bones of contention, mm-hmm. the oral sex yep. in the bedroom scene, and also the bank teller getting shot in the face. Yeah, I could see that being a problem too. They raised that as a big issue. But the funnier one was Beatty had to have a drag down fight with the National Catholic Office of Motion Pictures because one of the committee members insisted that he could see Dunaway's nude breasts in the opening scene. 
You can't. You can't. But he he was damn well determined he that was he had. scandalized. <laughs> I thought about her breasts. You must get rid of it. Uh, Beatty fought Arthur Penn on set constantly during filming. He was questioning every choice, and the cast waited for hours between scenes while they fought over what was going to go in the movie. So fucking stupid. <laughs> it really was. I mean, this is this is a guy with a giant ego and a director who has at least some credibility and probably is like, look, I know what I'm fucking doing, guy. It's the biggest dick energy. It is, but he pulled it off. I'm not saying he didn't pull it off, but he's still an asshole. And despite his prolific womanizing, Beatty and Dunaway agreed that their relationship during the filming would be totally platonic. They both made that clear. They fucked at the premiere. I find that interesting. I do, especially with Warren Beatty's track record. I do too. I don't know. Just the fact that they both insisted that, including Faye Dunaway, I was like, all right, okay. I mean, like, oh, I'm always in favor of being professional. That, and also when you're trying to play that impotence, I could totally understand why Beatty would be like, in order to really inhabit this, I really need to like actually do that <laughs> and not be the horn dog I almost always am. Hmm. Okay, who could have been better? Yeah. Okay. Bob Dylan. Fuck no. Now, this was based purely on looks. He was considered by Warren Beatty at the time because Bob Dylan had a very similar look to Clyde Barrow. I do believe that. I did because I said, you know, I looked up where their graves were. I saw pictures of what they looked like. So, yeah. I, yes, that I agree with that. But no. Eh, that, no. Dylan's not a bad actor in a different world. <sighs> Dylan is a whole different can of worms that I am not opening with you today. <laughs> Originally, Francois Truffaut wanted Terrence Stamp. Interesting. That's a little sharp for Clyde. And Truffaut's second choice was Paul Newman. Now, we will get back to Paul Newman. Um, I'm going to say no. Newman's too clean cut for that. He's a little pretty. He's too pretty. He's not dirty. Now, Now we talk about my boy Robert Redford. That boy can get dirty. Yeah, but at the time, he was also still real clean. I know. Like, he didn't get dirty until the 70s. I know, but it's in there. <laughs> Faye Dunaway as Bonnie Parker. I know. We talked about her for Network. This is her first major motion picture role. She did some stuff for this. But after this, The Thomas Crown Affair, The Arrangement, Little Big Man, Doc, The Three Musketeers in 1973, Chinatown, The Towering Inferno, Three Days of the Condor, Voyage of the Damned, The Champ, Mommy Dearest, The Handmaid's Tale in 1990, The Two Jakes, Dunstan Checks In, The Thomas Crown Affair in 1999, The Messenger, The Story of Joan of Arc, and The Rules of Attraction. I need to see the original Thomas Crown Affair. We would probably love it. So... Oh, she's garbage and she can't act her way out of a paper bag, which I think it's very similar to how I felt about her in Network. So, yeah, nothing's changed. <sighs> she's crap and a half. And yes, I recognize that this script is garbage and is giving her nothing. But I saw her Network and that script pretty damn good. And she was crap in that, too. So, you know what, Faye Dunaway? You're crap. Hmm. <sighs> Though she is really amazing in Mommy Dearest and that scared the shit out of me. So there's that. So I don't have that kind of fade done away hate. <laughs> I don't hate her. I'm just like, you're not a big deal to me. I, I like her in Network, personally. I also really like her in Chinatown. We'll get into it with some of these actors. I think she's the wrong person for the way this movie was put together. Because she's not able to necessarily keep energy consistency at different points. But see, you keep going back to how the movie's made and making that the reason whether or not somebody was good in this movie or not. That's and fair. that's bullshit. Yeah, it's a Kubrick rule. It's it, well, it's the Kubrick rule, but it's also you're either a good director or a bad director. A good director can get a good performance out of somebody whether the script is crap or not. We've seen people polish a fucking turd we're like you know what they're giving it everything and they're doing a great job and the words coming out of their mouth are shit but that is not their fault yeah she just looks really good on screen next to warren Beatty. yes she does that's about it and that is okay it serves the purpose of the movie i know she's crap okay who could have been better (laughs) originally warren wanted his sister shirley mclean now this was before he planned to take the lead role I keep forgetting that Shirley MacLaine and Warren Beatty are related. Uh-huh. But yeah. and, and then when you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, they look the same. Oh, yeah. They really do. Yeah. 
Shirley MacLaine would have been fucking great. She would have. But that wasn't going to happen because Warren wasn't going to do that with his sister on screen. That wouldn't be okay. (laughs) That would never be okay. Nobody, Nobody would be okay with that. Her and Paul Newman? Maybe. No, he's too pretty. Next up, Natalie Wood. Okay. She was very seriously in she talks She didn't want to get naked, didn't she? No, she could not be separated from her psychoanalyst who she was meeting with daily. Natalie Wood had issues. Sure. I mean, I think I- she had reasons for that, but you know. Uh, uh, okay. there's, there's a whole lurid story about that in the trivia that I'm not going to get into, but like, yikes a million. <laughs> she had problems. I really don't know enough about Natalie Wood to really speak to any of that drama, but... She could have been good. She would have been good. Next up, probably the best choice here, Jane Fonda. Yeah. Now, the rumor for the longest time was that Fonda turned the film down. Mm -hmm. And she actually revealed on Watch What Happens Live, of all places. (laughs) It's one of my favorite places. (laughs) That she desperately wanted the role, Mm -hmm. even auditioned. And she's already kind of a big deal at this point. Mm Mm-hmm lobby to get in and was turned down and to this day she is pissed at Faye Dunaway because she didn't get this role Jane Fonda would have been better yeah Jane, Fo- Jane Fonda for the win because Jane Fonda would have given it that extra something mm-hmm. she would have looked great next to Warren Beatty yep. but she also would have had that extra personality invested See, and that's, that's funny it's because I for a very long time I would confuse Faye Dunaway with Jane Fonda they have a very similar look, but Jane Fonda has something. Well, she can act. Jane Fonda she can, can act. fucking act. Yeah. That's the difference. She yeah, always she, has been able to act. I know. I love her in Grace and Frankie, which I talk about all the time on this podcast. <laughs> I really do. Because all these people are in that same orbit. That's why. And also, it's a really good show. I'm sorry it's ending. All right. Other choices. Share. <laughs> no. Apparently, Bono was pissed that... She would even be considered for such a lurid and morally bad film. Calm down. <laughs> Sunny, calm down. Shit's going to get crazy later. But she she wasn't there yet. And Margaret. No. Mm. No. And Margaret in the middle of the 70s actually could have done a movie like this. The no. money was too low for her. No, she couldn't she, have pulled this off. She was also an established star. Tuesday Weld, who was pregnant at the time. That's mm-hmm. why she couldn't do it. And Julie Christie turned it down outright. Julie Christie could have been interesting. That's a lot of great actresses. Yeah, Jane Fonda for the win. Jane Fonda mm-hmm. all day long. Yep. All right, next up in our main cast, Michael J. Pollard is C.W. Moss, who recently passed away, like just a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. Yeah. Before this, he was in The Stripper, Summer Magic, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and The Wild Angels. After this... Lots of odds and ends, but might remember him in Roxanne, Scrooge, Tango and Cash, Dick Tracy, and House of a Thousand Corpses. I remember him in Roxanne. Mm. I love that version of Roxanne. Pollard didn't realize that she don't actually eat food in scenes because of her feet it takes. Oh, he made himself sick. When they ate the hamburgers, he ate 12 hamburgers. Oh, no. He regretted it. <laughs> I would, too. <laughs> What'd you think about Pollard in this movie? He's great. He is. You don't think he's going to be great as he starts off and the more time you spend with him, the consistency is there. Well, he's he's just this wide eyed kid who gets like roped into this and then he he's fully into it. And so long as they keep egging him on, he's there for it. He's better off here. What's your name, boy? C.W. Moss. Well, I'm Miss Bonnie Parker and this here's Mr. Clyde Barrow. We rob banks. And then when they stop and they leave him, it's kind of like, oh, well, I guess that's over. Mm-hmm. He's he's just great. Yeah. He really is. He actually helps ground a lot of this movie. You need it. I mean, you needed some of those side actors to be real good anchors because this mm-hmm. movie could have very easily flown completely off the rails. Yeah, he's great. Moss is really a composite of all of Bonnie and Clyde's sidekicks over time. That makes sense. That's a position that it makes sense to centralize it, because if you kept swapping them out, 
it would be it would be that much harder to follow. Part of the problem with telling the story of Bonnie and Clyde is it's it's almost episodic. Like it's better mm-hmm. for a television series than anything because it's like they did this thing and then they did this thing and there's these little pockets of action. And so if you're going to tell the whole thing in one story, you've got to consolidate and change some stuff. No, and I'm I'm fine with that, yeah. but I know it barely follows their actual story. And Pollard admitted that his accent was taken completely from listening to Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Which I find very interesting. Hmm. Who could have been better? Hmm? Jack Nicholson. Hmm. Before Jack Nicholson was a known quantity, uh-huh. he was thought to be too similar to Warren Beatty. I could see that he would have been good in the brother role. That would have been that would have been a position for him that would have been a little bit better. It's better. He he better tonally. He just didn't have the right energy for mm-hmm. this kind of role. Sure. Next up, we get Gene Hackman mm-hmm. as Buck Barrow. Yeah. We discussed him with the French Connection. He mostly did TV before this, but this again broke Blew him. him. After this, of course, he did Downhill Racer, The French Connection, The Poseidon Adventure, The Conversation, Young Frankenstein, French Connection Two, A Bridge Too Far. All the Superman movies, Reds, Hoosiers, Mississippi Burning. I could fucking go. The 90s are crazy for him. Mm-hmm. He's Gene fucking Hackman. Yep. As much as Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway don't kind of know what they're doing in this style of movie. He knows what he's doing. He gets it. He No, he's a very capable actor. And he just, it's almost like there's this improv quality to him where he's just like, all right, what's going on? All right, I'm here. I'm the actor. I'm in the scene and I am doing it. And it's. It's good. He's committed. He's very committed. And he is usually the most interesting thing that's happening on the screen. I'm going to reverse my statement. Okay. I kept saying the edit is what's causing the actors the problem. That's not what it is. The actors have never done something like this before. And some actors are so good that they've got the consistency of character to be able to pull it off. And Beatty and Dunaway didn't know how to do that. Gene Hackman came from television. That too. This is TV acting. This is TV chops. That's the... Like... It's it's very much an improv energy coming off him. He's just committed, and he is the most interesting thing to watch when he's on the screen. He pulls focus every time. He's both ridiculously hillbilly, and then as he's dying, he's just so sad. It's so sad to watch him just bleed to death, basically. Yeah, that's sad. Who could have been better for this? Also, Jack Nicholson. Yep. Yeah, was considered for this role. Yeah, he would have done well in this role. But I'm going to keep Gene Hackman. Hackman's so good. He is very good. And he's so good for the story they're telling. Uh In reality, Buck and Clyde were very much sociopathic, horrible criminals. Sure. But this story does this great thing of like saying Buck was the good kid. Yeah. Buck was trying to make an honest living. But anytime he's around his brother, he just gets Gets him into trouble. And he's just so good at playing that down-home hillbilly boy who then is just like, oh, shit, we got to shoot the cops and get out of here. He filmed the death scene in his vest, but they filmed this movie out of sequence. Mm -hmm. So by the time they got around to the earlier parts of that scene, he couldn't have his vest on. They were filming in the dead of winter at that night scene. Oh, yeah. He regretted that decision. (laughs) Yeah. Next up and final in our main cast is Estelle Parsons as Blanche. She's the shit. I love her. Before this, she did a lot of television. Mm -hmm. After this, she did Dick Tracy. Mm -hmm. Long run on Roseanne. She plays Roseanne's mom. And the film Looking for Richard. She did a lot of like one-off other performances that aren't of a lot of note. And she's also on Grace and Frankie. I know, right? She's great. I love her. Like we're watching it. I was like, I recognize her. I recognize her so much. And it was like, it's that voice. She has this very specific voice. I'm like, why do I know her? Who is this? (gasps) It's Roseanne's mom. (laughs) I love her. She's fabulous. It is fascinating because you think she's just going to be a shrill harpy for this whole movie. Or she's going to die in five minutes. Yeah. And then she doesn't. And then right around that time that Buck gets shot and dies. It all turns. Mm -hmm. And that scene in the jail Mm -hmm. where her head is completely wrapped up Mm -hmm. is fucking amazing. Yeah, it's the shit. Like, it's really good. Yeah, she's doing so much. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. because I don't think she intended to perform this role this way. Parsons was the only cast member who actually researched the Barrow Gang. 
Okay. Nobody else looked into it. Sure. And kind of rightfully so. They're making something completely different than that story. Yeah, this it would have been better if they had gone like inspired by Bonnie and Clyde. A little bit. Penn and Beatty and everybody involved in the writing, they wanted to make Blanche as wild and manic and outlandish as possible to make Bonnie look even cooler and steelier. But I get it. They have to set their personalities up to be more differing on screen, so it makes more sense why they wouldn't get along. Like, yeah. you've got to have that tension between them, especially since the brothers love each other so much. Like, I get it. It's There's got to be some kind of conflict. Otherwise, we're just riding around in a car with four people who like to go rob banks. Yeah, pretty much. Parsons, at one point, was dead set on meeting Blanche, but mm-hmm. Beatty fought her on it long enough to where she was no longer interested. Okay. But unbeknownst to her, Beatty had actually brought the script to Blanche to approve, charmed her by singing and playing the piano. Uh-huh. He had to go get the approval from the Barrow family oh, and okay. the Parker families and everybody involved. And that script had to have changed mm-hmm. because Parsons would later go on to say that during that production, Penn had changed everything that made her look like a screaming horse's ass. When she went to see the film with her husband, Eddie, she was embarrassed by her performance. Hmm. I can see that because she kind of there's moments where she really comes off as a clown. Yeah. And it's it's so over the top. And if you're not really like invested in it or mm-hmm. paying attention to it, you would think she's just shrill and screaming the whole time. If you're not recognizing that she's doing a whole lot of work there to establish a character. Mm-hmm. In fact, Blanche Barrow sued Warner Brothers over the depiction in the film. Really? And it was settled out of court. Ooh. In reality, Blanche Barrow was pretty much the same age as Bonnie, arguably better looking than Bonnie Parker, and was never a preacher's daughter. And in fact, Blanche married Buck knowing he was twice divorced and a paroler. Okay. She knew full well he was a felon and was in for it. So Blanche Barrow in real life was a badass. Okay, I would be pissed too. (laughs) Yeah, they totally changed this character from what it really was. And that's one of the things that we talk about the script. Again, I would love to see the movie based off the original script because it sounds like they just fucking changed it. That would be interesting. At will. All right. That's the main cast. We also have some Arpons. We have Denver Pyle as Sheriff Frank Hamer. He did tons of TV film westerns, but you know him best as Uncle Jesse on the Dukes of Hazzard. (laughs) You get Dub Taylor as Ivan Moss, CW's dad. Okay. Big famous Western guy known as Cannonball Taylor. Mm-hmm. Gene Wilder as Eugene Grizzard in his very first film role. This is so bizarre. <laughs> it is, but it's so Gene Wilder. It it is, for sure. And gets the this wonderful moment of they're palling around. He's being such a Gene Wilder character. Hey, what do you do anyhow? I'm an undertaker. Get them out of here. So good. Yep. Patrick Cranshaw as the bank teller who says, we ain't got no money. You would know him as Blue from old school. Mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> and finally, Patsy McClenney, who was active in Dallas theater at the time, was Faye Dunaway's stand-in for scenes. Oh, okay. Her footage got left on the cutting room floor. You would now know Patsy McClenney as Morgan Fairchild. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she Here's the other fun thing. She's from Dallas. She, oh, that that's she, she was active in Dallas theater. She graduated from J.J. Pierce High School. I know. So she was in and around the production. Yeah, that's crazy. Fun times. Oh, my gosh, the trivia. Trivia. Still got a ways to go with that. Fuck so me. Frank Hamer, he also sued Warner Brothers. Cool. He was not a bungling sheriff who got held up by them. Mm-hmm. He was a retired Texas Ranger. Oh, fuck. That the governor called up to come in and try to solve this case. Damn. Yeah, I'd be pissed. Too. Yeah, no. He never met the pair until the final ambush. Mm-hmm. And Hamer didn't have to look that hard to find them. He didn't trick C.W. Moss's dad or anything. He realized they were going in a loop. 
They were in a circle. They just kept going in the same loop the whole time. So he just figured they were going to the next spot. Like, it was that easy for him to track them down. That's, yay criminals being dumb. Yeah, his family sued Warner Brothers and they settled out of court. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, they did. (laughs) When uh, you make $50 million, you settle out of court. I mean, you know. Mm -hmm. While on set one day, Gene Hackman noticed a guy standing behind him, staring at him. The man said, hell, Buck never would have wore a hat like that. Hackman looked at him and said, maybe not. And the old Texas farmer walked over and said, nice to meet you. I'm one of the barrows. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. When you're shooting on location, shit like that might happen. Yes. Yes, it could. Especially in small town, Texas. Mm-hmm. Beatty wanted the gunshots to be incredibly louder than the other elements of the soundtrack. And it was inspired by the film Shane. And that's something mm. you definitely see in this movie. It kept having to turn the movie up and down because yeah. the action sequences are so loud. Yes, they are. In London, when they premiered it, he noticed that the gunshot sounds were softer. He didn't know why. So he went up to the projectionist booth who had the ability to control that. And the projectionist had said, well, it was so completely out of mix. I, I assisted by changing the sounds. I haven't heard movie sound that bad since Shane. Hmm. <laughs> that's good. Penn pointed out that the film showed for the first time the firing of a gun and the consequences of the bullet in a single take. Before that, the gun would actually be fired. You'd have a cut and then you just see a bleeding body. That's fair. You would never see an entry wound before this. Mm. And also, I mean, the movie shows a gun fired into the face of a person without any intercutting of the camera. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly controversial at the time. It had been done in some of Sergio Leone's Westerns in the Fistful of Dollars trilogy, which we talked about with Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But this was really the first major time that it happened in an American film. Okay. In order to get the hazy effect of the family reunion scene for Bonnie's family, the whole thing was shot through a window screen. Okay. As Faye Dunaway planned her performance, she wanted to wear slacks because she wanted to be able to get in and out of the cars easily. Mm -hmm. So they brought in costume designer Theodora Van Runkel, who instead suggested she wear a glamorous look with a long skirt, beret, and jacket. It was such a fashion hit that Dunaway insisted on Van Runkel designing costumes for her for years after this. And thousands of berets got sold in the ensuing release of the film. Oh, there I have seen so many collections that have been modeled after the way she looks. It's very similar to Annie Hall. Diane Keaton's whole look like that became a huge thing. This became a huge thing fashion-wise. And I mean, still is. It, it was it such an is. iconic moment. Oh, and it's still beautiful and it's very timeless. This oh, is- yeah. And Van Runkel became a big deal costume designer sure. after this. Working on Bullet, Mame, Godfather Part 2, The Jerk, Peggy Sue Got Married, and Troop Beverly Hills. Troop Beverly Hills is the shit. I love that movie. Buck leaping over the teller's cage was actually a stunt that John Dillinger pulled in his bank robberies. Who learned it from Douglas Fairbanks performing in the Zorro films. Ah, cool. So nice little movie trivia. Ebert had been a film critic for six months (laughs) when this movie came out, and he hailed it as a masterpiece. He went against the tide already. Okay, I mean, this is an Ebert movie. This is an Ebert movie. This is such an Ebert movie. Yeah, Siskel would have hated it. To get the shootout sequence, they filmed with four different cameras, all at different speeds, lasting a total of fifty-four seconds. Hmm. It was actually written originally as just a series of still photos with their screams in the background. Hmm. It wasn't going to be actually filmed. Interesting, but Penn specifically wanted to create a shots that made it look like a ballet. He wanted to slow it down and languish in it so you really felt how that would feel in that moment. Mm. In order to keep her from completely falling out of the car, Dunaway had to have her leg tied to the gear shift. Mm-hmm. So that's why, I mean, even then, she's still having trouble staying in the car. Okay, that is not what she was... I've seen the pictures of the scene. <laughs> like... Bonnie's still fully in the car. She's oh, I know, completely I know. slumped over. And so I was just like, if you're going to do this, like, try to make it more accurate. They were they were going for this feeling. And yeah, it's dumb. But to me, it still kind of works. I don't know. To get the, the headshots for Beatty, they were trying to get a look where they had a fake scalp over his hair and it would look like it'd be blown off. The artist was so nervous mm-hmm. about the look that they just moved past it. Like they yeah. were like, This is too much. I can't do this. (laughs) 
And they had appliance pieces on their body that they would yank off to get more squibs off. Hmm. Everything was wired in that sequence to create the illusion that they were getting shot that many times. Yeah. Half a dozen of the cars in the film were on loan from a private owner who restored Model A's, Roadsters, and Model T's. Mm -hmm. Beatty originally wanted to film the entire movie in black and white. Would not have worked at all. Not for what they were trying to do in this film. No, there's a version of this film in black and white that could have been good. Yeah, but I don't think it was this one. Mm -hmm. When filming the Parkers in Red Oak, Texas, the locals were watching and the filmmakers noticed Mabel Cavett. She was the actress chosen to play Bonnie's mother. Oh, okay. So that's she is an actual townie person, Mm. which is why her performance kind of feels like just an old Texas lady. Production designer Dean Tavalaris was excited to see that most small towns in Texas hadn't changed since the 1930s. <laughs> 1967, 1930s weren't that far back. Everything kind of looked the same. And then they still looked the same for a very long time. Easy enough to pull that off. Don't have to pay a lot of money. I mean, David and I went to school in Denton, and there are stretches of the highways there that still look like that. There are parts, I mean, yeah. With the exception of like the road, everything else still looks the same. And it was it's only in the last 20 years that things have changed. Mostly because they get a subway and a McDonald's. Yeah. During Buck and Blanche's escape with the mattress, Estelle Parsons had to crank a concealed wheel behind the mattress that detonated a series of squibs. Oh, okay. And speaking of squibs, this is one of the first films featuring extensive use of them. Okay, that's cool. The Grizzard sequence with Gene Wilder was based on the actual kidnapping of Undertaker H.D. Darby by Bonnie and Clyde. Hmm. Darby stated that when they learned of his profession, Bonnie allegedly said, you may have to work on me someday. So a little bit more of a joking. Okay. Darby would actually be one of the coroners that worked on them after they were killed by the police. Hmm. More of that legend for them. Interesting. And finally, y'all remember that little fuck up we had at the Oscars with Moonlight? Yeah. That was to celebrate the 50th anniversary of this movie. That's so lovely that they they really made us celebrate it by making the biggest screw up in Oscars history. They acknowledged it? Well, then that's why last year they had them come out and do it again. Like, let's do this the right way. (laughs) (laughs) And I also, I believe they showed the thing before they read it. They were, I mean, to their credit, they were both incredibly apologetic. The PricewaterhouseCooper people absolved them like eight ways to Sunday. They were like, this was not their fault. Nobody did anything wrong. No. It was literally just a complete it was just a complete honest mistake. Oh, yeah. No, it totally was. It was just so funny. And the thing about it that you forget is like, that was the 50th anniversary of this goddamn film. Yeah. All right. This movie got nominated for nine Oscars. Okay. Best actor for Warren Beatty. Best actress for Faye Dunaway. Best supporting actor for Michael Pollard and Gene Hackman. Best supporting actress for Estelle Parsons. Best picture cinematography, costume design, best directing for Arthur Penn, Mm -hmm. and best original screenplay. It got nominated in every single major category. Okay. Yeah. Those are the big ones. So because we're doing all of the nominees, we're not going to talk about who won. Nope. And we're, you know, in the merits of that until we've seen all the films. This was a big deal at the Oscars for ratings. Got to think of a good system here. Tommy guns. Hmm. I want to do something a little more. Let's do berets. Let's okay. do Bonnie's berets. I'll allow it. How many Bonnie berets? It's my movie. Yep. It's not a great film. Nope. It doesn't hold up. Nope. It is, however, an important film and has a lot of touchstones for things that came later that I think are interesting. And it also has lots of really cool moments. Okay. I'm going to give this a three. Just above a middle ground for this movie for me, mm-hmm. because I still really enjoy it. Okay. I like the energy and the vibe of it, mm-hmm. but I I don't want to go any higher than that, because while I think this is an iconic movie, it doesn't hold up very well past the shock value of what it represented at the time. Hmm. This is a two. Okay. It's a two. <laughs> like uh, uh, I refuse to explain myself. No, I don't have to. <laughs> I understand. I, like, the, there's no script. The direction's crap. Fade in a way's crap. <laughs> it's, I like Gene Hackman. I like Estelle Parsons and Michael Pollard. And I don't care about anything else. 
do you think this movie deserves to be held up as an important movie? I don't think so. Okay. I understand why people do. I do understand that. Yeah. It's still crap. <laughs> it's crap. I mean, that's like, fair. That's here, fair. Here's what I'll say. The Kubrick films are better than this. Yes. Those deserve some of the hype they get. This one really doesn't. Because, well, those are technical achievements. Th- that's... <laughs> and this this is not. This, this is a tonal achievement, but it was despite <laughs> itself. That's... <laughs> That's on par with like good bowel movement today, everybody. <laughs> like, like a tonal achievement. <laughs> this movie's th- <laughs> That's the dumbest thing you've said today. <laughs> today. <laughs> so next week, we are gonna stick with some of the transgressive counterculture themes. Okay. With what might be one of the coolest movies I think I've ever seen. Okay. I'm afraid this movie's not going to hold up very well, mm-hmm. but I am excited for it. We're going to watch Cool Hand Luke. Okay, yeah, I've never seen it, so. You get Paul Newman in a much more natural element for him. Okay. And a really good solid character cast. Okay. This is a fascinating and weird movie. I'm excited about this one. Okay. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.